Morning, you step out of bed and into the whitewater raft that is your day. Paddle your guts out and try to miss that big rock. Ouch, never mind. But the river never stops. So wipe off the blood, paddle over to that flat spot on the bank, and we'll get some perspective together. The story's not about you, but if you can learn to see the whole river from Eden to the New Jerusalem, if you can learn to cry at the cross and sing at the empty tomb and trust God through the time in between, you won't just survive. You'll be ready to leave this world a little brighter than you found it. And then we'll get you back on the water. Podcast episode five, Eden to the City of God. Uh, my name is Ryan Bramlin. I'm co-hosting here with my friend and curriculum writer extraordinaire, Joe Anderson. And today we're going to be taking you through uh, lesson 1.6 in the uh, He Shall Crush His Head curriculum. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about, uh, well, I'm talking too much already. Joe, why don't we hand it over to you and you can guide us a little through what we're going to be talking about today. This lesson covers probably less of the Bible than about any other lesson in our curriculum, um, just because it's so significant to the big story that we're in. So we're covering Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6, a short six verses, and there's just a lot that goes on in here, a lot. Uh, This is the temptation of Eve and the fall of Adam and Eve, and so this just brings us through some really significant material for this Um, for the whole story that we're into. Everything after this is kind of, this is the problem that the whole Bible is trying to solve. Maybe I should put it that way. Um, So we want to get the problem really, really clear. We want to be clear on the problem so that we know what we're looking for when we, when we look for the redeemer of all things. And bring everybody up to speed here. Now we're, we're still early days. We're on page three now, I think of the Bible. Your, your Bible may vary depending on if you have the large type or the small type. Minus three, yours is three. Minus three? I believe minus, yeah, page three. Yeah, page three, okay. But here we have uh, we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and we have uh, a serpent who's going to be coming along and, and complicating matters for the two of them. Where What's the entry point for this um, material? Okay, so Adam and Eve were put in the garden to kind of as a training ground. They're supposed to rule over the entire world. And here in the garden, they get their test. Adam and Eve were called here to be specifically given Adam the task to tend and to keep or guard and cultivate the garden. And guard means to protect it from anything bad that might happen, which would include, of course, a serpent coming in. And then to cultivate it means to take care of it and make it fruitful. And this is training ground for going out into the world to do this to the whole world. They're going to fill the whole world and make the whole world into a garden. That's the idea here. So I think we're we're kind of at a crossroads here in terms of the biblical story. Um, if had Adam and Eve responded well to this test, then we could have had the outworkings of just just a glorious story here, straight from garden to filling the earth to to the glory of the New Jerusalem. No sin, no death, nothing. But instead, along comes the serpent and blows the whole thing out of the water. And we need to figure out how to deal with this and what that means for how the story is going to play out. Where do you think the, the, the need for this test arises from? Why does God want to test Adam and Eve so soon after they are created? Uh, what, what is the purpose of this test? And do you think he expects them to pass this test? 
I think this this is one of those enigmas as far as I'm concerned. Why would why would God test Adam and Eve? I mean, one of the answers you commonly hear is that, well, in order to have free will, they had to have a choice between between good and evil. That's never seemed particularly satisfying to me. The sense I, I'm getting from this is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not meant to be something they could never partake of. It was something for mature kings. If we think of Adam, Adam and Eve as as priest, king, and prophet. Well, they start out in the garden as priests, even as children, you might you might say. And they were not prepared, they were not mature enough to handle the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at this stage, but at some point God would give them that fruit. So it's a test, but it's not an arbitrary kind of test in, the, in this kind of read of the text, is that, that God had given them that tree so that someday they could eat from it and be pulled into this into this maturity and and there would be some sort of a death-like experience that would come along with that but it wasn't a sad it wouldn't have been particularly a sad death or something in that sense well i think this would be a good time to pull in a rope in our guest of the week for this episode is lydia tracy uh, lydia go ahead and just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about um what you do uh well i'm a counselor i'm a talk therapist and uh, I work a lot with people who have survived trauma of some kind or another, which sometimes is just accidental things and sometimes is really that other people have sinned against them. Um, so it's a ugly, hands-on look for me every day at the effects of sin in the world, the, the choices that we make and the choices that other people make and the way that they hurt us. And so that's what I do for a living. Yeah, well, I think we should just kind of start working through this. And I have a lot of questions for Lydia and from kind of her, maybe not a lot, maybe just one or two. Well, okay, but I'm, I'm kind of dying to say, because before you hadn't introduced me, so I was sitting here you being were sitting quiet. There. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because when I was a kid, I used to read this story and I would think, oh, I can't believe they messed it up for us. We could still be in the Garden of Eden, those idiots. You know, I would have done that better. <laughs> And so for me, part of growing up was stopping to realize, like, no, even if somehow all of human history had unfolded without somebody messing it up, I was like, I feel like I would have been the one to mess it up, which I don't, you know, but. It wasn't going to be you that was going to, you know, pass that test. It wasn't going to be me. Maybe, probably not Ryan. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that's why I was asking if God expected Adam and Eve to pass this test. Because Lydia could say, well, I think I wouldn't have passed. But you would say, well, I think there was somebody. Somebody out there somewhere would have resisted the temptation. And so it makes me wonder, reading this and not having a lot of experience with it, um, what was God? Was God thinking like, oh, these two have got this. They can they can survive this. They can uh, resist the temptation. Or was he thinking, no, they're probably not going to resist the temptation. And this will teach all of man a lesson. I will teach them a lesson from this for all eternity. I think that the if there hadn't been a serpent, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil sitting there in the middle of the garden, might not have been such a great temptation. There may have, maybe Adam and Eve would have passed had the serpent not come along, um, because the 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 power of the deception that he brought to bear on them was pretty incredible, and they had no defenses really, other than you know if this was a walled garden, then the serpent maybe should have never got in to begin with, but um, they didn't know they they'd never encountered a lie before. They had no idea what they were up against. Yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking, no, the serpent made this way worse, right? I mean, they had their own susceptibility to what he brought in 
It wasn't it wasn't something that was totally done to them. Right. They absolutely participated. But he set that whole thing in motion. And I don't know what would have happened otherwise. Well, let's speak just to Joe. One thing that you mentioned was was the the effectiveness of this deception that the serpent perpetrates and the methods that he uses. Uh, and perhaps he didn't need to be so devastatingly effective because they were so naive and they hadn't encountered falsehood. Um, but I just want you, because this is a, a, a point that is made in the, in the lesson and made really well. I want you to speak a little bit about the nature of that deception and why it was so devastatingly effective. Okay, let me just read um, Genesis 3.1 here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So on the surface here, here we have just, just the, the serpent is asking a question. I mean, it's a talking serpent, so that's unusual. But he's just asking, asking a question. But the question has built into, into it an, a high level of deception. Did God really say you cannot eat of the tree? It's almost like... He heard through the grapevine that God had said, you can't eat from any tree in the garden. But he knew, you know, the serpent wasn't dumb. He knew that they were eating from the trees of the garden. There was just one tree that they couldn't have eaten. But he he framed it up as though the question carries with it this idea that God is kind of out to get you. like, Or it's at least a possibility that if, if God did, in fact, say you can't eat from the tree of any tree in the garden. If God did say that, that would be a bad thing. Like that would be a God who doesn't want the best for you. Well, it's immediately prompting them to question the authority that they're under. Right. Yeah. And then, and then if, if he can get that, that question planted in Eve's mind, like, Oh, he's not, you know, that, that would be bad. Like if, if we did serve a God who, who wouldn't let us eat food, like, and put all this food here and said, you can't eat it. Like that would be bad. And if that's true, isn't it kind of stingy for him to put a tree right here in the middle of the garden and say, you can't eat from that tree. So he's planting a thought there. He's leading her through a, a kind of a series of thoughts. And I think this is what, you know, what any deceiver does is they don't, you don't start with the big deception. Like if the serpent came up to Eve and said, that's stupid that God said you can't eat from that tree. Why would God, like Eve would go, no, it's not. Look at everything else he's getting. So he doesn't, he doesn't just come out and say it. He's trying to, I, th- I feel like he's trying to just tweak her thinking little bits at a time to get her to really, really give over this temptation. So he, he kind of lays out this question. Did God, a, a question that the answer is, the answer to the question is no, God didn't say that. And had she been in kind of a mindset of gratitude and, you know, and, and not been kind of sidetracked by this question, the answer would be, no, that's a stupid question. Of course, God wouldn't do that. He gave us this whole garden full of food specifically so that we would have abundance. Um, the, the answer is pretty obvious, really. But he got her to just tweak her, her thinking a little bit. And then she responds with this, this little bit that verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And immediately the serpent contradicts that and says, no, 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 you're not going to die. I mean, we, as we can interpret from the, from the, the verse that the serpent somehow knows what would happen or knows the, that they actually Mm -hmm. would die. But immediately he says, you will not die. He lies to them outright. Right. 
yeah, then then comes the lie after she's after he's already tweaked her thinking, and you can tell he's tweaked it because of this here in verse two. She actually says that uh, you cannot eat it, nor can you touch it. Um, she's saying some. She's saying that God is more stingy than he really is. You know, God didn't actually say that. Part of what's so insidious about what the serpent is doing, at least how I think of it as a twenty first century American. We're so privileged to live in the country that we live in and to have everything that we have. And something that churches in our in America are constantly doing is asking us to be more aware of what we have and to be, have a, a more tangible stance of, of being grateful for everything that we have. And the serpent's entire deception is based on Eve not having that stance of gratitude or not... Um, I guess not considering everything that she has, she's not able to use that as a defense against the serpent. And instead the, the serpent speaks to that, which she cannot have. And so she, she loses that. Thinking about this story and the, the application in the curriculum about how gratitude would have been such a useful protection in this moment, right. For her to realize as the curriculum calls out that the question that the serpent asked her was absurd, right. And then gratitude would have been that protection. It reminds me of this verse in Romans one, uh, verse 21, uh, where it, it basically the chapter one takes you through this series of dominoes that fall as people sort of fall into a worse and worse state of degeneration. And, at the beginning of that progression in Romans 1, it says, uh, though they uh, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And they're, uh, I'm paraphrasing a little, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And it's the very beginning of this set of dominoes is they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. And I thought of that when I was reading the application in this story. Well, this is, this just came to my mind because we were just talking a minute ago about the kind of the man-made hedge of protection. We're going to, we're going to build the boundary around this tree. We're going to put a little fence, right? About six feet out from, from this tree. So we don't get too close to it. We want to use that as a protection, but somehow that, that ends up taking authority to ourselves and making the temptation in some ways stronger or, or distance since we're now, we're now creating our own boundaries instead of letting God draw the boundaries. We're creating distance from God, which is its own kind of sinfulness. So we have this kind of protection, you know, creating our fences. And then we have another kind of protection here is that that cultivating a sense of gratitude is, is another kind of boundary to protect us from that temptation. And so it seems like we have kind of two, ro- two paths to choose, kind of a, a, legal, a legalistic path where we can we can draw new fences and kind of cut ourselves off from temptations and then we have the gratitude path where we just say no if I'm going to if I'm going to be able to fight this temptation it's because I have to have my thinking right all the time and the way my thinking is right is by constantly looking to God in faith in worship and in gratitude knowing that it's very hard hard for the the tempter to draw me off track when I'm that focused on the God who's given us so many good gifts and again, especially applicable for 21st century uh, U.S. Americans who are often feeling convicted that they're not quite as grateful to God as perhaps they should be. Um, I'm soft peddling that, but I, I think we all know a lot of people who are not as grateful for what they have. And it's hard to, it's hard to uh, access that in a culture that is always 
prodding you to be upset about what you don't have. And so the temp this temptation of Eve is rather relatable from that standpoint, because we're constantly being tempted by our culture into making poor financial decisions to buy the car that we can't really afford, or I could go on about this. Um, but I, I want to... Uh, can I, can oh, I say one more thing about of course, the, uh, please the do. fences thing? It seems like if you're, if you're building, if you're, you're, you have this temptation here, you have this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you're, you're, you're saying, I'm going to protect myself from that temptation. So I'm going to, I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, cut down a bunch of trees and build some fence posts out of it. And I'm going to spend days and days here right in underneath this temptation, building these fences so that I, you know, I might avoid this temptation. You're really putting yourself, I'm going to work really hard to protect myself from this temptation, puts yourself that much more in the presence of the temptation, where if you, you step away and you say, I'm going to just thank God, worship God, I'm going to go to the temple and, you know, offer my sacrifices and bring glory to God, then you're away from the temptation and your focus is where it should be. Well, this reminds me of something we tell people a lot in counseling and it's sort of like a like a dorky counselor joke is like <clears throat> if I say to you oh don't think about pink elephants and then I wait a couple moments and I say oh what are you thinking about well the answer is pink elephants because in best case you're sitting there going oh, don't think about pink elephants why did she say that what kind of what and, you know and then pink elephants are running through your head and so the and the application of that in the counseling world is that we think about you pick what you're choosing to focus on. You're not sort of focusing in the negative, as it were. Um, you're picking a new thing. So you're not sitting there thinking, oh, gosh, look at that tree that looks so beautiful that I'm not supposed to eat. I'm not going to eat that tree right there. Instead, you're literally supposed to turn your body around so the tree is behind you and say, I'm going to look at this beautiful mountain or whatever other thing, you know. Um, so, yeah. And again, just to dump on modern culture again, because that seems to be where I'm coming from. Uh, we live in a culture that that um, that essentially tells us to deny ourselves nothing, to just to immediate wish fulfillment, whatever we want, and then justify it later, whether it's uh, financial temptation or temptation of the flesh. You could just go on and on. We're we're encouraged openly to pursue whatever we want in that moment and to get what we want as quickly as possible, and then worry about it later. And, anyway yeah consumer culture is just built for for making maximizing temptation you know absolutely maximizing going after whatever your heart desires in the moment and we know who the serpent is the serpent is the well it could be anyone it could be the corporations it could be the ad agencies or we could turn this <laughs> this podcast into something completely different just to yeah, dump on culture <laughs> it's actually turned into a value to go after all those things in a way. So what could be viewed as discontentment with what I have in our culture is actually turned into a value and, and a positive thing. We really twist that around and, and, and think that someone is, um, I don't know. It's like we put a positive moral value on you being someone who goes after the good things in life, who works really hard to like, you know, achieve these things or get these things. And the flip side of that is an ugly discontentment with what we already have, but we don't focus on that and we really turn it into a positive thing about someone's character, potentially even, that they would continually strive in that way. When we're talking about somebody that we admire, rarely do we say, oh, that Lydia, boy, she just really appreciates everything that she has. She's a, <laughs> She doesn't try to go out and get a, the newest car or, or whatever. She just is really so appreciative of her life. 
it's rarely something that it's it's rarely a method that we use to praise people. Um, but yeah, saying that someone is is constantly thankful to God is is perhaps a way that we should be going. So going back to the way the temptation kind of works out here, we have this question, subversive question that plants the seed of doubt about God's goodness in Eve's mind. And then we have, as you mentioned, like a straight on, you know, truth claim about exactly contrary to God. So it starts with a question, a subversive question. And then he moves on to this claim that you will not certainly die. And now Eve is put in the position of, she's got this seed planted of doubt, but she's put in the position of having to make a choice here. Am I going to believe the serpent? And by believing the serpent, I'm serving and following the serpent, or am I going to believe God and serve and follow God? I think this is what the way temptation, this is not just a story about Eve. This is the way temptation always works. Starts by Front, usually from the outside, some sort of a seed is planted or it comes from our own sinful hearts because we can have sin built into us. So we don't even need that seed from outside, but often it comes from the outside. We have a, seed, a, a, a thought planted and then a moment of hard choice comes. We face a temptation where we have to choose, am I going to go on this path or am I going to go on this path? Am I going to believe God and follow God or am I going to believe the lie that's that's in front of me? Another thing I wanted to touch on is the nature of the the temptation itself. And you, you make, you spell this out in the curriculum in a really great way that it appeals in three ways. Uh, the, the fruit is good for food, meaning it's, it's appealing to lust of the flesh, that it's pleasing to the eye. So it's lust of the eyes and then desirable to make one wise appealing to, to man's pride in, in, uh, in, in ever increasing his knowledge. Yeah, I think all temptations come to us in, in one of those forms or often all three of them at the same time. And the bill, the, the, the tricky part is that all that good things, like good things that we're supposed to have, are also pleasing to the eye and and desirable to make one wise. And so um, there's there's an element of just all of life is is temptation or a a desire for something good that's not that's not wrong at all and it's easy to to convince yourself well this is just one of those things where this thing's not particularly bad and um god would surely god would want me to have good things and that's kind of the situation that that eve's in here is well you know why would god withhold this it's pleasing to the eye it's you know it's good for food and god wants me to to eat well and and surely he wants me to be wise i mean he's wise so it all it all kind of makes sense in her mind well, you're, you're getting at, um, in a sense, she's trying to get to what she feels God's intentions are for her while ignoring his direct authority. And so, again, that, that goes back to so many situations that you might have as a kid when you think, well, you know, mom or dad would be happy if I did this, even though they expressly, it's the ends justifying the means, in other words, i you know, your, your parents may be asking you to get a job when you're a kid, but they may have told you don't steal the car, don't drive the car. And yet you think, well, I'll just take this car to go to this job interview because they would want me to have a job. And, and if I need the car to get there, I'll just take the car. And, and then you crash the car and you've, you've, you've undermined the authority to achieve the ends that you feel your parents wanted you to achieve. And that's what I think is happening with, or what I see is happening with Eve here is that she's assuming that God would, 
would want her to have this, even though he directly forbid her to have it. <laughs> so she listens to the serpent because of that. I'm thinking at a larger cultural level, there's a parallel there as well, because God created this world full of good and beautiful things for us to look at, to enjoy, to appreciate. You know, he, he created food that tastes good and sunsets that are beautiful and all of these things. <clears throat> but on on a much larger scale, what we seek to do is to try to have those things and enjoy those things while ignoring God's direct commands and things like that, just like your example with the parents, right? So we have these explicit things that God says to us about, this is how you live in this world I've created for you. This is the best way. I've made this world for you. I know how it works. And I'm telling you, this is the best way to live in the world that I have made for you. And we say, well, okay, so, you know, you, Lord, I mean, you want me to be um, happy and you want me to be fed and you want me to appreciate your beautiful creation. And so I'm going to make up my own path to doing that and go after it. And that's, that's like our larger story as humankind, right? I mean, we write that in so many ways every day. Yeah. And the serpent says, following up on, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, don't you want to, didn't God create, create you in his image? Don't, aren't you supposed to be like God? And, and so she's at, she's at a, she has, I don't know how she's taking this or how she's meant to take it from the well, This is the ends justifying the means. Right. Exactly. And she could take it either like God God know you, you know you know that God knows this and, and God either either maybe she's going oh God is trying to hold this knowledge of good and evil back from me or she's doing the ends justify the means thing so he's either casting doubt on God's goodness yet again or the serpent is kind of pointing her to what God's ultimate aim for you is to be wise you know and so here you can have this here's a sh- it's a shortcut you know you can get to you can get to that wisdom without having to to go through the hard work so as soon as, as Eve does partake of this fruit, one thing that um, you mentioned here in the curriculum that I think uh, is, is a connection that I certainly would not have made is that there's a transference of authority where God is no longer the, the authority where Adam and Eve have in fact, in a way, ceded their authority to the serpent uh, as, as the new Lord of the world. And I wondered if maybe you could just go into that a little bit. Yeah, we mentioned that, but I don't really explain, I don't really show the math there. So I'll, I'll be happy to work through that. Adam and, Adam and Eve were given authority to rule over the world by God. The serpent is underneath their authority. So they had every right to, to tell the serpent what they want, you know, they, to exercise their authority over the serpent, but they didn't. Instead, they submitted to the authority of the serpent. They obeyed the serpent. The serpent comes along and says, you should totally eat of that tree. Um, God's withholding from you. And if you eat from that tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The result of this is that Adam and Eve eat from that tree and they obey the serpent. And in Romans 6, I think, it says that you are, you become, whatever you obey, you become a slave of what you obey. So they obeyed the serpent and they became therefore a slave of the serpent. So they put themselves under the authority of the serpent. Now, the, of course, the, the way the serpent spun it out is you can kind of be your own God. You can, you know, 
you can make this choice yourself. But that option wasn't you know, like making the choice themselves is never an option that's on the table because they either follow God or they follow the serpent. They can't just kind of do what they want at this point. Like there's only two options, obey the serpent or obey God. Don't eat from the tree or eat from the tree. So you, uh, and I think this is true of us all. We're never really autonomous. We never have the freedom really to make, um, make our own choices. The serpent lies to us and tells us, you can totally make your own choice. But the moment you make your own choice, you're disobeying God and you're obeying the tempter. So once they obey the serpent, they're now slaves of the serpent. And in doing so, their authority of creation is given to him as well, because now they're obeying the, they're, they're obeying the serpent and they're now under his authority. And we, at some point we could get into how the serpent is the, or Satan has taken the form of this serpent. But as a new Christian, something that I heard quite a bit when I first started on this path is that Satan is the Lord of this world or Satan is the Lord of earth. And it was something that frankly, I, I found pretty confusing. Uh, at first I didn't have any understanding of how Satan could be the Lord of this world, or it didn't make any sense to, to me. Uh, so when I read this in the, in the curriculum, that was something that was a bit of a light switch that turned on because it never made any sense to me on how Satan is the Lord of the world. But if Adam and Eve ceded their authority to the serpent in this moment, um, and it's not meant to always be that way for all eternity, but for now, and since this point where she bit of the fruit and listened to him, to the serpent, that is what gave him that authority. And that is why they it is said that Satan is the Lord of the world. Am I correct right. on that? Yeah, absolutely. That that Satan is not, he's not authority. It's not as though God said, okay, well, now that you've sinned, I'm taking you over the world away and I'm giving it to the serpent. Um, it didn't, it didn't work like that. So when we say this, the, that Satan is the Lord of the world or the ruler of this world, like it does say in the new Testament, we don't believe that God has given him that authority. It doesn't say that in anywhere in the Bible that God has given him authority over the world. God gave that authority to mankind. And then we gave the authority over the world to the serpent. So God, he doesn't have that authority in any legitimate sense other than we have that authority and we gave it over to him. And then uh, to do the to do the um, the thing where we kind of spoil the whole story, you know, give you another spo- spoiler, spoiler alert. Here, <laughs> here it comes. But the how do you get that authority back? Well, you have to crush the head of the serpent, right? You have to defeat the serpent's the authority has to be taken away from him, and so you need a a a king to come along who has the power to conquer sin and death and destroy the enemy. Who would that be, Joe? Well, it's, I think it's Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Way to give away the ending. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert is a, is a, a, a frequent feature of this podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of great though. It's great that we know that. Yeah. It's nice to know. So with the, the time that we have left here, I'd really also like to talk about, uh, how can we apply the lessons that we have learned from this examination of the temptation into our lives? Um, how does knowing this story at a deeper level help us to, to avoid or resist temptation that we face every single day of our lives? We know that gratitude is, is going to protect us from temptation and building fences isn't building fences puts us kind of in, in a, in a position of authority um, that we don't need. We need to keep that authority. Like God makes the rules and we just need to leave the rules with him. But uh, cultivating 
I think cultivating habits of gratitude puts us in a strong position when it comes to temptation. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do this, you know, the, the, what I like to do is build, build, build the habits of gratitude into our family liturgies, just daily gratitude. So one of the things we do as a family is every morning kids wake up, we have three little girls, JL, Esther, and Karis. Um, and we get up and sit around the breakfast table. And before we eat, we say, thank you, gods. And the kids each come up with one to sometimes 20. <laughs> thank you, gods. <laughs> Takes a while. I'm usually pretty hungry by the time we're done with thank you, gods. And then, of course, I have to, you know, we have to come up with one. Me and my wife each come up with a thank you, God, or two. And and that, that kind of starts our day off from a position of gratitude. And I really think it's been a, a source of strength in terms of temptation personally. And building that rep, that ritual of gratitude into your life is, uh, is, is really so, so critical, as you say. Another thing that you mentioned, uh, or as a way that Eve might have been able to resist the temptation that she faced was to simply take this temptation to God and put a, put press pause on the conversation with the serpent and say, you know, thank you for your input serpent, but I'm going to go to God with this and, and say, relay the conversation and trust. And perhaps that would have just led to the authority been being reasserted as I'm sure, but there could have been a conversation there and that conversation didn't happen. And so that in its own way is encouraging us to, to go to God with our problems and, and with the temptations that we face and to um, initiate that conversation. If we, if we hadn't already when faced with temptation. Yeah. And thinking of the Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Like that's one of the things that we're supposed to go to the father for our father who art in heaven. We're supposed to bring our temptations to him. Um, and we're supposed to ask for protection from those temptations. So I think that's perfectly, I mean, it would have, it would have been a much different story. Had have Eid said, hold up, what are you talking about? God, <laughs> I mean, God couldn't have been too far away. He's everywhere. So he could have just said, God, what's the deal here? What am I supposed to do as a serpent speaking the truth? What, help me figure this out. He was certainly available to help out in the very moment. I had something actually I wanted to add on the gratitude piece. Yeah. Just if we could tack that on. <clears throat> in my family growing up, um, we had a family blessing book, it was called, and it was just a little spiral notebook. And when things happened, big or small, that I, I, I don't I don't know what the criteria were because you can't write down all the blessings. So this continues to boggle me. So I guess it was sort of whenever the spirit moved, my dad would get out this book and he would write it there. So he would write things about, you know, there are some from before my time in the family and I can read in there, you know, something happened. Uh, there are family stories about this. You know, the tires were ruined on the car and we didn't have the money for new tires. And then someone popped in and said, Oh, the Lord told me to give you this and handed them just the right amount of money for new tires. Like that actually happened in my family. Or, um, you know, one Christmas, somebody gave us a hundred dollar gift certificate to some local store. And it was right at the time that like one of my brothers didn't have a coat and somebody else didn't have a dresser. And so, I mean, we, I remember this trip to the store and somebody got a coat and somebody got a dresser and it was like important things that we needed at just the right time and just the right thing. And these are all recorded in this family blessing book. And my dad still has it. I was just looking at it the other day and you can flip through it and there's a date and it's, and it has this record of these things. And, um, 
it's awesome to read. And it's, it was another way just in our family that we practice that. When you're facing your, your clients or your patients, I'm not sure what the correct word is to use. Either one is fine. But do you, um, as a way of coping with the trauma that they've faced, is that part of your remedy is to ask them to, to, to look at gratitude as a, as a tool, um, for overcoming these things that they face to be more grateful for what has gone right? Or is that, um, just simply too difficult in the, I guess it would depend on the trauma, but is it, is it too much to ask for them to not ignore the trauma, but to focus on things to be grateful for? I think it's an important part of the healing process. I would say it's not necessarily in the early stage because the early stage is very often um, me communicating. I hear you. I hear your story. We're walking through this together. That's real and that happened. And some of that affirmation that's important um, because sometimes when people experience something terrible, other people will tell them, oh, but look at all these great things you have in your life as a way to... um, not not actually as a practice of gratitude, I would say, but as a way to minimize what someone has survived. And so it seems like part of the the healing process is that they need what they've survived to not be minimized. And that's somehow an important prerequ- pre- prerequisite to then going on to freely experience gratitude for all these good gifts that God has given them and the good things that they are experiencing and do continue to experience. But it's very hard to see those when your vision is full of so much pain. Yeah, that's really, I think when you kind of word it that way that I can just, I can totally see your average church person, their neighbor comes along and says, you know, I went through this horrible thing and it was absolutely tragic and I lost the closest person in my life to me or whatever trauma they've experienced. And you say, well, but look at all the good things in your life. You know, don't don't think about the bad things and everything's going to be fine. Like it's such a trite, stupid answer, you know, such unhelpful advice. Um, but somehow, you know, if you can if you can hear them long enough and identify with their what they're going through properly and not minimize it, you might earn the place to say, you know, here is I know this is hard to hear but you're never going to get out of this hole without changing changing your direction your pers- getting new perspective and the way to do that is gratitude. Yeah. <clears throat> when you think about it, like in Matthew I think it's Matthew we learn that the Lord mourns with those who mourn and weeps with those who weep. He doesn't just triply recite passages about how we can do all <laughs> things through Christ who strengthens us, right? I mean, the, it is true that that the Lord is with us and it's true there are all these things to be grateful for. And it's true that the Lord gets that things are sad and he cries with us. Somehow this is all true. And um, right, I think people try to be really well-intentioned. They think they're trying to encourage someone And what the person needs first is for them to bear witness to, this is a real and painful thing in my life. And that's an important part of it. And the Lord bears witness to that. He makes it clear throughout scripture that he walks on this journey with us. So if he does that, where do we get off not doing that for each other? We need to do that too. Um, And and there's this other piece of encouraging them and helping them to recognize the gratitude when when the time is right. Hmm. Yeah, you wouldn't want to go to gratitude first. Right. Yeah, you don't start there. Well, and also because that would be crazy making, right? Because we're not grateful for the horrible things that happen to us. We can be grateful 
for the things that come later, right? You know, when there's a forest fire and there's devastation, that doesn't seem great. But then when the new life is coming in, it's beautiful and you can appreciate that. But you don't appreciate the pain of the fire that happened. Like, that's not, that's insane. Well, you often hear people looking back on, on traumatic things that have happened to them, things that are perhaps years in the past. And they say, oh, yeah, it was truly awful for me when I was going through it. But now I'm now I'm grateful that I went through it because I'm a better person or whatever. Gratitude is something that seems to become so long after. And it's easy to have gratitude once the healing has taken place. Right. Because uh, well, what they're great. And, yeah, <laughs> it's OK. <laughs> I was going to say what they're grateful for is what came after. Not, they're not like, you know, the turn of phrase we would use in English is, oh, I'm so glad I went through that because da, 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 da. What they're getting at is they're grateful for what came next. They're grateful for somewhere after that when this new hope in their life dawned or whatever it is. And that's what they're grateful for. They're not grateful that they had to go through the pain. I mean, my goodness, if they could have gotten there without the pain of who wouldn't take that, I'd take that. Sign me up, you know? Yeah. And in some, I think God has... Uh, with the the picture of the cross and resurrection, it seems like uh, as much as we maybe don't like it or want it, them the best things in life, the most glorious things, only come through some level of suffering, some personal death, and then a, a, a miraculous resurrection that comes after that. There's no, there's no short, there is no shortcut. There and just like the knowledge of good and evil, you know. Um, there was no that you couldn't just eat that fruit and get the get the the glory that you were supposed to get by going about it the hard way. You have to take the longer path, the harder path to get there, unfortunately. Well, that is about all the time we have on this episode of Eden to the City of God. I'd like to thank Lydia Tracy for being our guest on this episode. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It's fun to be here. And Joe, do you want to uh, close us out with some uh, words of wisdom? Maybe a song. Maybe a song. <laughs> do a little dance. Interpretive dance, I think you... No one can see the dance. You okay. have to sing. Okay, yeah. Um, no, this was a lot of fun. Lydia, really thank you for the insight on uh, temptation and your counseling background. It was really a good one to have in, on this lesson. Thanks, Ryan. And we'll dig in deeper next time. headwatersresources.org to download our podcast and check out our entire line of books for you and your family. Our podcast was created and produced by Joe Anderson and Ryan Bramley. Our theme music was written by Pacifica. Our narrator is Tim Nichols. In our next episode, we take one more step through the Bible. For Ryan and Joe, this is your official announcer, McKenna Dunch, saying goodbye for now, and may the peace of the Lord be with you.